Thank you for joining us today. We're continuing our series on the book of Psalms. We're doing a verse-by-verse expository teaching through the first 42 chapters. It's the first of five books of the book of Psalms, and this is very pertinent to our culture today. We've talked about this in week one of Psalms 1, and then last week speaking about uh, trusting God in times of crisis. You're going to find in the book of Psalms, it is speaking to us for this generation It is speaking to us for this hour. It is speaking to us at the crisis time we find ourselves in, and it's going to show us hope, power, and deliverance. So let's dig right in. Psalm chapter 3 today. I hope you have a Bible. You can turn to that unless you're driving, of course. But Psalm chapter 3, I want to read the whole chapter, and then let's pray in just a moment and ask God to bless us. The title of my message today is, It May Look Like I Am Surrounded. It May Look Like I Am Surrounded. Let's read Psalm, one, Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he heard me, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many of thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And the last verse, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. If you look back at these past few weeks, you'll see in Psalm 1, we have a man who's tempted on a personal level to sit with sinners, to, to stand with the wicked, to be in the seat of the scornful. It's, it's a personal attack. It's a personal temptation. And then we move to Psalm chapter 2, and we see it's now it's an, a national trial that these people are going through. The turmoil is in the land. Chaos is in the land. People are raging against the Lord. It's very much like America and many places in the world today. Psalm 2 is on a national level. And now we come to Psalm 3, and we see a whole new story transpiring in King David's life. This is where uh, it starts off by the header of this chapter says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, his own son, he fled from him. And so the Psalm 3 is now taking it not to a personal temptation level, nor to a a national turmoil level, but it's taking it to an internal uh, crisis, an internal situation. What I mean by eternal, I'm not speaking about his heart or his own, own uh, uh, emotions, but I'm talking about his own uh, nation, his own family. See, in Psalm 2, you see it's nations outside of Israel raging against them. But now in Psalm 3, it's a, it's a internal revolt. It's a coup that's taking place And sadly, this coup is not just some uh, ambitious general or uh, a group of people that are um, uh, against uh, King David and his land, but it's his own son, Absalom. I I am astounded at the honesty of the Bible and, and those who wrote it. And here, this is a psalm that David wrote, and it's a psalm of David, and it starts with this this title saying, "A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son." This this is a uh, this is a unique way of, of starting a book, starting a chapter, starting a song, starting a psalm. It, it would be as if we were saying to, our, to, to ourselves, is, uh, uh, when, when I ran away, uh, when, or maybe writing a song of uh, when I got fired, or 
when my wife left me or when my company failed. You see, these are things that we would say that are embarrassing us or cause us shame. And these are things we wouldn't want to boast about or talk about or even people to know about. We tend to hide them. We tend to put them in a place uh, secret. We try to put the difficult things behind us and we don't want to deal with the difficult realities that we're suffering in our life. But the Bible and King David and God, as he inspires these writers, is wanting us to be honest with ourselves, to say, I'm in a troubled time. I am in a place where I'm fleeing, where I'm running. I'm in a place where it may look like I'm surrounded by enemies all around about me. And this honesty blesses me because it allows me to do something that I believe we in the church need to be doing is to be honest with one another, and more importantly, to be honest with God. He hears our cry. It teaches us not to be ashamed of our troubles, not to be ashamed of our shortcomings, not to be, but, but to be open about our heart condition, to be open about our struggles, and not put on a face, a false mask, a, 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 a mask to cover up the problems and the hurts and the pains that we're going through. This teaches us also that the introduction of a story or a psalm or a song or a book is not always the same as the end of the story. When you trust Jesus, there's always an end of the story that is different than the beginning of the story. This story starts of when I, David sings, when I fled from my son Absalom, who was in a revolt against me, taking over the, trying to take over the kingdom. That's where the story started, but that's not where the story is going to end. Your story right now may be a story of trouble, trials, tribulations, heartache, brokenness, pain. You may be in a Psalm chapter 1 tribulation where temptation of sin, of the lore of the enemy pulling you into these things to get you to stand, to sit, and to be in the presence of these wicked uh, ones who would tempt you in that area. Or maybe you're in a Psalm chapter 2 trial where it's a national level. You're grieving over the condition of America and the nation you might be from. We see this in Lot and in Noah where he's, they're spoken of how they, how they grieved over the condition of the city that they were in, how their heart was torn asunder. They were rending their hearts because of the, uh, the horrors of the culture around them. And many of us in America are doing that today as we see the sexual revolution gone wild. We thought the 60s was, was a rough time, but now we're seeing things that are so extravagant, you would not even be able to mention them without blushing a decade ago, and now they're open and being promoted even by our government. We see it sexually, we see it in abortion, we see it in, in uh, hate and crime, all these things happening in America, drifting from a place where we once honored and trusted God. It could be that national level, or you could say, it looks like I'm surrounded now on a more personal level, not just with temptation and not just what's going on in my nation, but what's going on in my own culture, my own family, my own marriage, my own children. Here, Absalom is revolting against his father. But many of you are facing situations right now in your own context. You're seeing difficulties. Maybe it's you found out your spouse has committed adultery. You feel uh, ashamed. You feel uh, brokenhearted over these circumstances that you find yourself in. And David certainly understands, and the Holy Spirit understands, and Jesus understands the pain and the sorrow that you're going through. This is giving us, as we look at this chapter, you're going to see, though, that it's, as I said just a minute ago, it's not the end of the story. This chapter is going to give you hope. This chapter is going to give you peace. This chapter is going to cause you to rest in the blessings and the honor and the glory of God. Psalm chapter 3 is, in the context here, what is happening is Absalom has been 
uh, exiled from the, the land uh, because he had killed his own brother, taking vengeance on him. And he's fuming, he's raging. He's, he's like the Psalm chapter 2, uh, one who's plotting against the king, one who's consulting together with other rulers, try to convince them to follow him and have a revolution against King David and the promise that God had for David that his throne would be established. And what starts as a small movement gathers steam. Before long, gossip increases more people that are revolting. And that happens whether it be in a nation or in a church. Uh, Families fighting against families, deacons against elders, elders against pastors, people against people. We see these things happening. It starts small, but before long, it's a conspiracy. 2 Samuel chapter 15 Verse 12 says that this was a conspiracy and it increased and the people were turning their hearts towards Absalom. And as we dig into this passage here, we're going to see in verse 1, it says this, O Lord, so Absalom is, is revolting and David begins immediately to pray. Now, if you take a look again at the history of this, you would see that when Absalom gathered some troops and some of the people around him, to revolt against David. Uh, David didn't think at that point to fight. He thought more of a flight. He, he ran from this battle. He looked like he was surrounded, and his first thought was, uh, this is not a battle I want to fight. I don't want to fight against my own son. I don't want to fight against my own family. I don't want to fight against the problems that are happening in my own household. And so he begins to cry to the Lord. Now, there's another passage of Scripture that says that, that he fled. Uh, he went out through the night. He went out through the gate. And, and as, he, as he was leaving that night, he was weeping and he was mourning and his head was covered because of the pain. And many of you know what I'm talking about. Many of you know what David is talking about here as you have spent many sleepless nights weeping and crying out to the Lord, wondering what happened to the promise wondering what happened to the marriage, what happened to the business, what happened to the church, what happened to the calling on your life, what happened to your health, what happened to your finances. David is an example for us of what to do when we feel like we're surrounded by problems that are far too much for us to be able to handle on our own. And so he cries to the Lord, Oh Lord, how many, and if you have your Bible open, you might want to underline the word many there. You're going to see that Uh, spoken of quite often in this chapter. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Another translation says uh, of this verse 1, how they, speaking of the people and the rulers in Absalom, how they have increased who trouble me. Now this can be spiritual attacks. It can be physical pain in our bodies or suffering that has increased. It could be financial problems that increase, emotional problems, suffering of the mind that increases. Maybe friends hurting you, that is increasing. Or even family coming against you, and that is increasing. It could be in temptations that are increasing, or habitual sin that seems to be encroaching around you and increasing and surrounding you where you don't feel like there's any escape. This can mean one of two things. It can mean that there are many people attacking you on one front, you're, you are you're seeing increased trouble that there's a host of people attacking you in one area of your life. Or secondly, it could be I'm being attacked on many different fronts. And of course, the worst of all would be if you're attacked on many different fronts by many different people, many different circumstances, many different events. It's an accumulation oftentimes that drives us to uh, almost utter despair. We can oftentimes in our own strength handle one problem one crisis, one difficulty, one temptation. 
But I tell you, when they begin to compound, and there's one on your left and one on your right and one in front of you and one behind you, it seems too overwhelming. You cannot hardly bear what's happening in your life any longer and you're ready to give up, ready to surrender, or like David, ready to run in flight, in fear, and in feeling like there's no hope for your future. How they have increased that trouble me. And this opposition can be wearisome. It can provoke uncertainty. It can get to this place where, where our problems are multiplying so fast and then we begin to pray like, David, oh Lord, how many, the, uh, how long are these people going to increase? These problems are going to increase against me. And, and we want our prayers to be answered quickly. We want our problems to go away right away. And it wrecks havoc on our mind and our emotions are troubled and our spiritual confidence is sinking and it can cause our imagination to run wild. We begin to thinking the worst case scenario, I'll never get out of this. I'll never escape from this problem. My enemy's going to overwhelm me. This is too much trouble for anyone to handle. Where is God when I need him most? And we begin to see these things increase in our life. In our own family, we had an experience, my wife and I, where one of our teenage sons began to smoke marijuana, and we began to pray for him. God set that boy free. But instead of seeing that prayer answered instantaneously, he got worse. And so we doubled down on our prayer effort. We, man, we started seeking the Lord and praying more and more, and, and he got worse, started taking pills. And we, we then started fasting for him once a week, and, and instead of seeing the answer immediately come, we found him getting in more and more trouble to the point he became homeless, living on the streets as a heroin addict. But I tell you what, that's not the end of our story. But while we were in that experience, uh, we saw what seemed to be the hardship of unanswered prayer, of difficulties of seeing things get worse as we prayed. End of that story is like an end of the story of David, is that God came through and my son was miraculously saved and he's been clean and sober for probably seven years now and he's serving the Lord, has a lovely family and two children, gave me two great-grandchildren, two grandchildren who are great and I'm not a great-grandfather yet, just want to let you know that. But you see here that this opposition becomes wearisome and the answer seems uncertain and that causes us to, to, to feel more stress and more anxiety and more worry and compounded to that now is as we get older, just now talking about being a grandfather, I'm getting older now, and we have many years of experience of, of, this, of compounded troubles, a growing list of adversaries. Maybe when you were a teenager, you had one bully uh, or one teacher that was mean to you, but then you got married and you were having some marriage problems and some of your neighbors started, and then you went to a church and maybe there was a church split, and, and you get older and older, and the, the, these things that surround you begin to not only increase, but it gets compounded. You have a long history now of enemies that have come up against you, uh, who've taken advantage of you, who, who, who hurt and wounded you. Even those in your own household, like Judas's kiss, those who are closest to you have betrayed you. I experienced that in my own life and ministry. And uh, a, a close confidant, and a friend of mine, he told me one day, he said, Gary, you know, you say you believe in the total depravity of a man, but you act like, in the to like you believe in more in the total innocence of man. And what was he meaning by that? What he was meaning was this, is in theologically, I believe that uh, you, all humanity has the sin nature, the Adamic nature. But I was living in this false view of everybody's nice and everybody's kind. And why would anybody want to hurt me? I'm a nice guy. Why, uh, I'm kind to others. Why would anybody plot against me? Why would anybody rage against me? Like they were doing David, the king here. 
And, and I began to realize we do have enemies. If you don't get that straight, and if you don't understand that Satan will send enemies against you, you're going to find yourself defenseless. You won't have that shield about you. You won't be crying out to the Lord. You won't face the realities of the battle. You'll be like David, running in flight from those enemies, confused, not knowing what to do. But God has a better plan for you. And he's begun to teach me. He's begun to teach me how to fight when I'm in a battle. When I'm surrounded by enemies all around me, he's teaching me how to have spiritual warfare in the middle of this, not fighting flesh and blood, not, not fighting against that, but against powers and principalities, the things that you don't see behind the scenes that are truly the things that are surrounding you. I've learned the hard way that I'm going to be attacked and that enemies are going to rise and I hope you learn that as well. False accusers are going to lie about you, and there will be many who will try to, to pull you down. And Absalom's revolt, as it's catching on, it increases, and wild accusations are, inc- are incited against David, and judgments are, are, are pre- they've been predetermined against him. They've already cast him out. Could you imagine the emotions that David was feeling? We are told he gathered a few things, left his castle, left his throne, left his kingdom. He called on a few of his family members and some of his late loyal soldiers and comrades and confidants. And with his few remaining friends, I picture it being late at night for some reason. He's, he's walking out of there having packed a few things, knowing that his son, uh, one passage of Scripture says 12,000 soldiers were aligned against him, certainly surrounded in all of Jerusalem. And he's walking out of his beloved city and he's leaving his throne, his kingdom. And, and more importantly, he seems to be leaving the promise of that God raising up an eternal kingdom through the lineage of David. Now he feels like the, even the promise of God. Have you ever felt that way before? That, that God had promised you something, that you'd hope for something, you're believing for something. And all of a sudden you get surrounded by things that are taking that away from you, robbing you from that, that vision that God had given to you. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30 says, but David went up to the ascent of Mount of Olives. Does that ring a bell? The Mount of Olives where Jesus wept the night before he was betrayed and brought to the cross. David, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. What a great description. What, a, what an accurate description of what it's like to feel this kind of pain and sorrow we're talking about here today in Psalm chapter 3. Barefoot, head covered, weeping as he went, fleeing from the, the surrounding enemies that are all around him. And then verse 2, it's, it, it, it's, there's this personal attack. Verse 2 says, many are saying, here we go, we got that word many again. Verse 1 was, Lord, how many are my foes? And not only do I have foes, you see, because some of us have foes, but they're not doing the second thing. They're not rising up against us. But others of you are facing not only having foes, but they are actively rising up against you. And when they do this, here's one of the tools that they will often use. It's in verse 2. It says, many of are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, interestingly, this, this word many is used three times in the first 13 words of Psalm chapter 3. The writer here is expressing a feeling of being overwhelmed. Many, 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 many behind me, in front of me, all around me. And, and he's overwhelmed in this saying. But, but he's saying something else here, that, that they're, they're rising up against me. But this, the, the words that they've just said may be the most painful thing of all. David was a, a powerful soldier, a, a mighty warrior, and he could handle himself in battle. 
but sometimes you see his soul being downcast when their words were spoken against him, words of wounds of, of people that he loved, like he loved his son so dearly, Absalom. He, he loved those soldiers, that, those mighty men that he'd raised up in the cave of Adullam, and, and he was devoted to them, and now they're wounding and hurting him. But not just the physical revolution, but a, a, a word attack coming against him. And, and here's what they say. Many are saying, of my soul... It's interesting here that it, they weren't attacking his behavior. They were attacking his soul. They, they weren't attacking what he was doing. They were attack, attacking who he is in his being. And oftentimes that's the worst kind of attack. It's attack against your character. It's a, attack, and oftentimes it's the attack against the greatest strength that God has given you. And, and David had that, that his soul was, was saved and brought into that promise of God. And they're saying, no, no. Uh, Many are saying in my soul, David says, that there is no salvation. Now listen to this. They didn't say there's no salvation in God. They didn't change their confidence that God could save somebody, could save. Maybe they were thinking, maybe Appleson was thinking, I don't want to say there's no salvation in God because when I ascend to the kingdom, I want God to be my salvation. But what they're saying is there's no salvation for him in God. Now, David is concerned about this. It's deeply troubling his own soul. They, they weren't attacking his, his doings. They were attacking his being. And they were saying for him, there's no, no hope. Now, the historical context here, you've got to understand this. You see, David could, could be hearing their attack on him and believing it, of, of owning it, of, rather than resisting it, saying, you know what, I, I think you're right. Maybe I'm fleeing, I'm running, I'm, my head is hanging, I'm leaving at night and barefoot in tears. And, and I don't know where I'm going and I don't know where I'm ending up and I don't know what's happened to the promises of God. And he could begin to believe that, especially if he began to look at his own character. Maybe they're right. Maybe there's no salvation for me in God. After all, there was a time, and it all started with something simple. I was a king who meant to go out at the times where the kings went out to war. I meant, was meant to go out and fight battles. Uh, he was built to be a warrior, called by God to be one who would fight for the kingdom of God. And yet he decides to take it easy, to rest. And so he's in his, in his, in his, in his kingdom and he's up on the roof. And so starting off with just that less lackadaisical, laissez-faire attitude begins to slip into something else. And now he sees this beautiful young woman named Bathsheba and she's taking a bath on the roof of her house, obviously very close to where his, his, his kingdom, um, his throne was. And so he, he sees her, and, 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 and so he's tempted. He's lusting after her, but he, but he takes it a step further from a, from a mental lust into a, a physical lust where he takes her and, and sleeps with her. And you know, she gets pregnant, and it gets worse. Then he has Uriah come, and he tries to get him to lie, and that doesn't work out. And so finally he ends up becoming a murderer. He takes Uriah's life, and, and, and now he's... Now he's seeing this civil war that's rising up against him. Now his accusers come along and, and say, you know, you got, got, God, there's no salvation for you, David, and God. You, look at your life. Look at your history. Look at your sin. Some of you are battling with problems with habitual pattern of sin, and you're ready to give up. You say, there's no hope for me. I'll never get out of this. I'll never get out of this addiction. I'll never get out of this anger problem. I'll never get out of these situations that I find myself in. Or I'll never get out of these battles that are surrounding me in my life. And you begin to become your own worst enemy. 
Now it's, not lo- now it's no longer the voice of the outside accuser saying there's no hope for you and God. Now it's your own voice. And when you get to this place, there's little fight left in you. The only thing to do is to flee. It's not fight anymore. Now it's flight because you believe your own bad report. David seems to be saying, I brought this on myself. They're right about me. I won't find salvation. And that's exactly where Satan wants you. That's why he sends all these enemies to surround you, not just to to cause you to be troubled by battles, but to get you to lose hope in the midst of that battle, to get you to have such self-despair that you no longer are trusting in God, being the one who can save you from that problem you find yourself in. Oh, but there's more, and there's so many good things we're going to cover here in these next few minutes. Verse 3, as we are going verse by verse through chapter 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. It may look like I'm surrounded. You hear me say that many times here already today. And it comes from a song, a worship song that's been recently uh, written the last couple years, and many people are singing it. It may look like I'm surrounded, but, but, but I'm surrounded by you. There's a, there's a promise of God in the middle of our, uh, the sense of being surrounded. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Or you could say, a shield all the way around me. You're the glory and you're the lifter of my head. It begins with a prayer, O Lord. And it describes the king's trouble. He's seemingly with these odds stacked against him. And it's, but he's not hopeless. He has another prayer in his heart. You see, verse 1, he's praying, Oh Lord, how many of my foes? His prayer is a prayer of despair. It's a prayer of description of the pain and problem that he's in. Oh, but verse 3 begins to change things. He's now saying, But you, O Lord, he has moved from that cry of many, 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 many are surrounding me. And now he singles his focus on one. It's not many anymore. He's not worried about the many problems. He's not worried about the being surrounded by these things because now he has his focus on one. He's not saying many. He's saying, but you, it's one. It's you, O Lord. You're the one. I I look to the one who is my deliverance. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You are, instead of focusing on his problems, now he's focusing on the Lord. It can be easy to focus on the many when those things are pressing in around you. But David is encouraging us to press into the one, the one who is that shield. And he says to the one, you are a shield about me. Not just a shield, but one that is round about me. You are surrounded by your enemies. Many enemies coming from different, many different quarters. And you could be overwhelmed by this, but David says to you, and the Bible says to you, and God says to you, uh, I am a shield. David is saying to you, you are a shield. It, 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 God is a shield. It, it's God himself. No matter how totally encircled you might be, no matter how you, whatever direction your enemy comes from, whatever force they come with, you are, are totally protecting me, God. You have my back, not just in some circumstances, but in all circumstances, in all situations, over all my enemies, over all my worries, over all my concerns, over all my temptations, over every uh, thing that takes place in my life, sufferings, everything that I have, all, 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 you're all around me. Your shield covers my back and my sides and my front, above me and below me. There's no place left in me. If you remember in the New Testament, it tells about Jesus when Satan has come to tempt him and he says, but he found no place in me. Isn't that powerful? God had so shielded him that there was no place. There was no empty spot. There was no like, this little section was open for the enemy to pierce him with the sword, but it was God there saying, I'm your shield. No matter what happens, I'll be your shield. The shield here is not just a military term. 
It's not just a material item. It's not just a shield like it's some kind of force field uh, uh, around that uh, can protect you, some supernatural kind of like a, a ozone level or something. It's a, and nor is it an angelic host. David said, you, pointing to the one, to God, saying, God, you are the shield. My shield is not an army. My shield is not Babylon. My shield is not Egypt. My shield is not uh, swords. And my shield is not uh, horses and chariots. It's you, God. You are my shield. You're the one who's, who's it's not just a, an external uh, protection. It's the very presence of God. My friend, I want you to know that today. God is present to you in your time of need. A very present type help in your time of trouble. He is here today to help you, to deliver you, to give salvation to you. No matter what history you have, no matter what problem, if you've repented, turned to God and trusted your life into the hands of Jesus Christ. If you said, Jesus, be my king, be my Lord, because well, of course you're going to say that because he can't be anything else but that, but you have to submit to that. And if you've done that, then you are a, a child of his who has a shield about him. You are that king that the previous chapter, Psalm 2, talks about. Today, uh, you are my son. Uh, I have set my king on, on Zion, my holy hill. Today, I have begotten you, birthed you. Now, that's talking about Jesus in Psalm 2, but it can also talk about us, how God causes us to be daughters and sons of God who have this shield about us. I don't have time to go into it, but I would have lo- loved to have taken the time to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, and, and, and particularly in verse 17. And if you have some time, maybe later in the day or sometime this week, uh, turn to that thing where you see the, 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 the people of God are surrounded by a host, a myriad, thousands upon thousands, more than the eye could see. And all of a sudden, the prophet says, uh, look again. And he says, I see, the people began to say, I see chariots of fire the, these, the, 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 I thought I was surrounded by enemies who were going to kill me, but now I see my enemies are the ones who surrounded, and I'm surrounded by you. I'm surrounded by your presence. I'm surrounded by your protection and your power. Now, there's three things that the Lord brings in response to this cry that David has. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. You're my shield. Those are three powerful things, and we've talked about the shield, and the glory is God's presence it's the Hebrew word kavad. What it means there is the weightiness of God. He's thick there. It's not just some light touch. It's not just some passing presence where he helps you a little bit. It's deep. It's profound. It's real. It's long-lasting. It's a forever type of presence of God. And then there's the lifter of the head. God gives you faith. He gives you confidence. He gives you boldness. David was fleeing, but now he's starting to see some fight get back into his heart. And that's what God wants for you and I. The shield is to protect us, protect us from the opposition all around about us. The glory is to get rid of that self-doubt that says, maybe I don't deserve, maybe I, uh, I'm not worthy. And, and in reality, we don't deserve it. In reality, we're not worthy. But God makes us worthy through the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us, that cleanses us, that redeems us, that saves us. And it's through that salvation that God says to us, you won't be cast out. You won't be neglected. I will give you this glory, and then that glory will lift your head. The lifted head is a recovery of faith. It's a recovery of hope. It's a recovery of confident trust in who God is. Let's continue and look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This is not a quiet, passive request. It's not lightly throwing up a little prayer towards heaven. No, this is no light, whimpering intercession. But this is a loud, vocal, anguish-filled cry. 
This is with a raised voice. It's a moaning. It's a groaning. It's full of emotion. And many are afraid today to be emotional with God. They hold back. They're reserved. They, they fear they might say something wrong or pray something wrong. Or maybe they're showing too much weakness to God and when He wants us to be strong. Or maybe it's going to show if we cry out like this, a lack of faith or confidence in God. But you know what, my friend? God already knows what's in your heart. And he wants you to tell him because oftentimes it's in the expression. We hear ourselves saying the things about our weakness, our doubt, our fear. And all of a sudden now God begins to respond and speak to that very issue that we've just raised up to him. Speak to him. But God already knows and he wants you to get rid of it. He wants you to get rid of it out of your heart, out of your mind and into his hands. Remove it. It's That's what the Bible calls the casting of your cares upon him. David says, I cried aloud. It wasn't just a, a, a short little whisper of a prayer. It was that anguish of soul. But I like this next part. I cried aloud to the Lord. It doesn't say I cried to my friends. Of course, he didn't have telephone then, but we could say today, it wasn't getting on the telephone or on Facebook and crying out to his friends, sharing his problems and griping and moaning and groaning. No, David goes to the Lord. He didn't go to, to family. He didn't go to friends. He didn't go to his generals. He didn't go to his troops and say, come on, guys, let's rally around me. Let's restore me to the kingdom. He's, he's, he's going to the Lord because he knows the Lord is the one who has all the power. He knows that where his solution lies. He knows where the deliverance lies. It's not, as I said earlier, trusting in horses or chariots, but it's trusting in the Lord. And David, as I said, has removed all his focus now uh, from the increase of his opposition, opposition and the accusations and the doubts of his own heart, the despair of his own heart, he removes his eyes off his quivering faith and his loss of hope, and he goes to the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. And the next part of this verse says, and he answered me, and he answered me. Possibly the three most important, powerful words you'll ever hear expressed or express yourself when you're praying, when you're crying, when you're hopeless, when you're surrounded by your enemies, and you're able to say in that prayer, that cry, that loud cry in prayer, you're, you find yourself saying, he answered me. Three powerful words, he answered me. I cried and he answered me. I was in trouble and he answered me. I was surrounded and he answered me. I was hopeless and he answered me. I was asking for deliverance and he answered me. I was asking, am I, am I able to still be saved? Is there any hope for me? And he says, he answered me, he answered me, he answered me. The, this loud cry of David is, is not just some cathartic emotional release of pressure or some stress that God uses to make you feel a little better as if he was some kind of skillful psychologist. No, it's much more than that. Uh, it's much more than making you feel better. No, it is much more. It is God doing his great and marvelous work on your behalf. The cry is the initiation of heaven being moved on your behalf to cause all these enemies who are around you that are surrounding you to be surrounded by his power, his force. How do we know David got answered? How did David know he got answered? You know, because... Right now, it doesn't look like he's back on this throne. It doesn't look like the Absalom has run away or surrendered. It doesn't look like these 12,000 troops that are hunting him down have, have stopped hunting him. How does he know his prayer is answered? Well, he knows because he understood the heart of God. He, and he even had a foreshadowing of the knowledge of the work that Jesus Christ would do on our behalf, becoming that intercessor for us, uh, praying to the Father for us, being that, that shield for us and 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 he understood also that scripture that says he knows before even he even knows even before we ask he knows isn't that powerful before david cried god knew before david was surrounded god knew 
God in his sovereign omnipotence and God in his sovereign omniscience, knowing all things. He knew the circumstances David would be in, but God already knew the cry would come up. And not only that, here this is, I find this extremely interesting. Not only did he know before David asked, but he was already bringing the solution before David asked. He was already bringing the solution before David found himself surrounded. God is in a sovereign plan and his will for your life has prepared for you a path, has prepared for you a place of protection, a place of a promise that cannot be thwarted. It cannot be held uh, in, in, uh, in a pulling away from you. It is something that God has for you. This is, this, is, uh, this is almost like we would say about Christ himself when the, there was, before there was ever a sin, there was already a remedy for the sin. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Before anybody asked for salvation, before anybody, uh, before Christ was, was slain, there was, there was the foundation of the world. It was where the work was already being done. What am I saying to you? You don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fret. You don't even have to wonder if your prayers are the right kind of prayers or they, do you have the right kind of faith or am, am I standing on the right kind of promises or am I making the right mouth confession? Sometimes we get so caught up in those external uh, methodolog- methodological ideas about how to come before God's presence and we miss the heart cry of this thing. He hears the groaning. He hears the doubts. Some of us are afraid to confess we have doubts because we're into the like a, a false form of positive confession, of, of, of self-talk to get ourselves out of problems. That will not do it. You need to cry out to God. And when you do, you'll find he has already moved on your behalf. He's not going to move. He already has moved. He's already orchestrated the events uh, uh, and the key things that he's going to do in your life. Speaking of key, here's a key lesson, and we'll be finished with verse 4. We'll move on to the last few verses in the last few minutes we have. But a key lesson to me here is that David worshipped. That's found in verse 3. He's saying, Lord, you're a shield. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. He's worshipping. And then, secondly, he goes in to intercession. He worshipped before he interceded. And you would think it would be the other way around, that he would cry aloud and, and he'd intercede before God and then God would lift his head. And when God lifted his head, then it was, then it was his time for worship. Now I can worship because God lifted my head and he answered my pr- prayer. God, David did it the other way around. He worshiped first. He began to praise God. He began to thank God. He began to trust God. He began to call on him as a shield, as a lifter of his head, as his glory. And it was out of that worship that came a confidence that he could be bold in prayer, that he could ask believing, that he could trust in the goodness of God. And he saw God moving on his behalf that was born out of worship. It was not that... uh, it, it was not uh, interceding when you feel a breakthrough and then you begin to worship, but we have here a better, better model. Worship first. God lifts his head, but then David, uh, after worship, he moves into intercession. Uh, years ago, my father, David Wilkson, he preached a sermon called Right Song, Wrong Side, and it was probably one of his most well-known sermons, and I would encourage you to listen to it online. Right song, wrong side, and it's Moses and the children of Israel as they're on the edge of the promised land and they're in stress and anger. They literally are surrounded all around by their enemies, but God opens up the Red Sea. They cross the other side. When they get to the other side, when the Egyptians are flung into the sea, they began to sing a song, a song of deliverance. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. And this powerful message my father preached was saying, it's the right song, but it would have been better if you sang it on the other side. 
Sing it first. Sing it even when you're surrounded by your enemies. Don't wait until you're delivered. David worshiped the Lord when nothing in his circumstances had changed. He was still uh, exiled. He was still under a military coup that was against him, and yet he began to worship, and out of that gave him the confidence to, to believe that God was using his prayers now uh, like, like a... Like, uh, like something stronger than any physical army. Uh, uh, it's, it's what we find out is that David's worship and intercession are the most terrible weapons formed against his enemies. It, it wouldn't be that he raised up an army or that he had more chariots. It, it was his worship and his intercession that caused his enemies to fear more than anything else because they knew that the, the power that David had with God, he was a man after God's own heart. Horses and chariots create less problems for our enemies than do our prayer and our praise. And I want to encourage you, in the middle of your problem, don't wait for, your, don't wait for your, uh, the surrounding enemies to, to flee before you begin to worship, before you begin to give thanks. Don't wait for the circumstances to change. Let your heart change first. Verse 5, I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The sleep came as a result of worship and casting the cares Upon him. Now he can be at a place of rest and a place of, of trusting in the Lord. The next chapter, Psalm 4 8, says this In peace I will both lie down and sleep. It's interesting he says that because many of us lie down, but we don't sleep and we don't rest. Now, this may not seem like that big a deal. We may say, like, well, you know, there's some important things going on in this third chapter, and now all of a sudden he's talking about getting a good night's sleep. This is much more important than we realize because it's when troubles are increasing and we're spending our days without peace, and we're losing sleep night after night, uh, verses like this can be one of the greatest answers to prayer, because as God gives his beloved sleep, uh, we begin to get restored, refreshed, renewed. Our well-being, our vigor, our vitality is restored to us by God giving us that beloved uh, rest of the, uh, the peace that he gives to his beloved. Then he says, I woke again. Here it's more than just an alarm clock went off and said I woke up and I dragged myself out of bed and I was, I was going into uh, another day. Uh, it's more than just a few good hours of rest. It's awakening. I woke to the confidence that God is putting in my heart now. I, I, I woke to the faith and, the, and the, the, the restoring of the things that he has for me. And then he goes on to say, for the Lord sustained me. How could he rest? How could he wake to the, to the newness and the freshness and the vigor and vitality? Why? Because the Lord sustained me. He doesn't say the Lord will sustain me. It's in past tense. He uses past tense. He sustained me. In other words, he's remembering all that God has done, that God had never failed him. And my friend, God will never fail you. Remember today how many times he's brought you out how many times he's forgiven you, how many times he's cleansed you, how many times he's worked out your problems, or how many times even when you're in the middle of a problem and that problem didn't change and yet he sustained the joy in your heart even though you were in the valley of the shadow of death. The, David understood this. His history was defeating bears and lions and giants and armies and territories conquered uh, uh, all, all around him. Um, but now his own people have come against him. But even now he had trust that the Lord will sustain him just as he's done in the past, and the Lord will sustain you just as he's done time after time again. Webster's defined this word sustained as maintained at length without interruption. Now David is saying, God, this promise of my kingdom, you've maintained it at length without interruption. Does that really sound like that's a reality? When you, when you read David's story of, of, the, of the beginning of the psalm, the psalm when David fled from Absalom, his son, and you see right yet the circumstances haven't changed, and yet he's saying, God, 
you have maintained at length without interruption the promise of an enduring kingdom. The kingdom may not have seemed maintained, but it was. The promise may not seem maintained, but it was. The length of the promise was not going to be uh, hindered, nor will it be without interruption. But you say, Gary, that, it was interrupted. He was, no, it wasn't. He was still king. He, he was still the rightful owner of that, and God was going to soon restore that. You see, it's not based on appearances. It's based on promises. David has the promise of an enduring kingdom, and he's saying here, I woke to the realization that God had maintained his promise to me at length and without interruption. Isn't that good news for you today? That, that no matter what you're facing, you can take this definition to the bank. You can say time and time again, this can start worship just stirring in your heart. God has maintained his promise to me at length and without interruption. Verse 6, I will therefore not be afraid. That's, I, I added the word therefore, but it's in the text. It's just, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against, uh, against me all around. Why? Because he already seen the shield all around him. Even though Samuel, Second uh, uh, Samuel seventeen one says Absalom had twelve thousand men against him, we see that David was not. Uh, uh, he didn't fear anymore. He 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 was fearless in their presence. It wasn't that just the, the they went away. It was that he was no longer living in that fear. This is first an internal change, no more fear. Then secondly, it's an external change, no more enemies. Verse seven. Now now that his fear is gone. Now that his hope is stirred, now that his faith, his faith is emboldened, he can ask boldly and confidently, and he says this, in, as we have two more verses to cover in this verse 7, Arise, O God. Save me, O God. David's heart is now steady. He's ready to go to battle. He runs towards the fight. He's, he, he, he turns. He's, he, 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 his run turns to his ready. His, tur- his fear turns to faith, and his flight turns turns to fight. He's no longer a man who's in flight. He's now a man who's in a fight. And that's where God wants you to be. See, he, he stirs these things. He gives you this shield. He answers your prayer. He, he, he gives you rest. Uh, he says that his promises are, are going to be maintained without length or interruption so that you might come to this place where you're calling on God to arise. Lord, I'm awake. I'm, a, I'm woken now to these things. And now I want you to rise with me. And let's get into battle together. Let's, let's save the day. Let's win the battle. It's not uh, only an internal peace that God gives, but he also gives an actual external victory. You see, it's one thing to say, in the middle of my battles, in the middle of the surrounding, I'm still at peace because I know I'm surrounded by you. But it's another thing for God actually to go to battle on your behalf and destroy your enemies. The first one is saying, Lord, fix my heart. Give me faith. Give me confidence. But the second one is, fix my enemies. Uh, Put the fix on them. The first one is, Lord, deal with my heart. But the second one is, deal with my enemies. You see, we want our circumstances to change. And Christian faith is not just an internal victory. It's an external one as well. He can save marriages. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He can set captives free. He can set drug addicts free. He can cause those temptations to flee. He can cause you to be uh, serious, sober, loving God, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with power. Those are external changes. And he can heal your body. And he can change your financial circumstances and situation. Nothing is too difficult for this God that we're talking about today. For he says in this next in the same verse, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. I love this word here in the middle of this phrase, for you strike all 
Uh, if you were here with me right now, I'd ask you to repeat that word out loud with me, or maybe you could just underline it in your Bible, or if you're in your car or driving, just think about it, the word all. What does that mean? Surrounded by many enemies, many, many fronts uh, coming, attacking you, and, and many of those fronts are filled with uh, aggression and, and anger towards you, attacking you. And God says, you strike all my enemies, every single one of them. It's not just... You know, some of you think, well, God, if you could just set me free from my financial difficulties, I'll worry about my marriage later. Or if you could just help my children who are backsliding come back to the Lord, I'll, I'll worry about my job later. But God says, no, I'm dealing with all your enemies. Every single one of them, particularly those things that would be hindering your sanctification, your spiritual growth. I'm, I'm going to fight on your behalf against all those things, all your enemies. And he says here, I'm going to strike all your enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. We see here when he strikes, he breaks. It's, it's, no, it's no light blow. It's not a soft blow. It's, and it's not like uh, Paul said, I don't strike at the air. It's not God striking at the air, missing his target. No, he hits straight on, a forceful blow that knocks out the enemies. And it's a specific task that this blow does. It, it affects the cheek and the teeth. What are these things? They're both in the mouth and in the jaw. This is the strike at the root and the source of accusations that are coming against you. The thing that said to David, there's no hope for you in God. And now that those, the teeth of those who have said it, the teeth of those we read in Psalms too, that, that rage and plot and counsel together against the Lord and His anointed against you and I. The, the, can you picture them sitting in that room and they're plotting against you and they're accus giving accusations against you and they're counseling how to take you down and God comes into that room and begins to smack them around. He breaks their teeth, breaks their jaw, and, and, and smacks them. On, uh, he strikes them on the cheek so that that mouth is closed, that biting and devouring, that, that's all put to, uh, God shatters their ability to have conversation against you. And he put, uh, to put it more strongly, he shuts their mouth. He shuts the mouth of the accuser. He shuts the mouth of the enemy. He shuts the mouth of Satan, who is the, the accuser of the brethren, so that you can live with this godly confidence that the Lord is for you and not against you. And lastly, in the last uh, verse 8, uh, uh, this, this may seem like, a, let me read it first. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. It may seem like a, just a really sweet benediction that he's dealt with all the harsh realities of life and the business that needed there. And then he brought hope and promise that God would be the deliverer and now at the end, he's just kind of giving you a little bit of, maybe the Lord bless you and be with you and keep you as you go out and as you come in. But no, this is much stronger than that. This may be, this may be the, actually the most important verse in this chapter. You see, if you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he was stating to those men he was walking with that he explained to them, the, all, he explained to them uh, in all scripture concerning himself. So Psalm 3 is concerning Jesus Psalm 3 is concerning the salvation of Jesus. And it says here that Jesus is the salvation and it belongs to him. Salvation belongs to Jesus. The work that he did on the cross, there's, no, there's salvation in no other name. There's no other source for your reconciliation with God. There's no other source for the power of the Holy Spirit to come live in your heart but the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is not found, this, this work of salvation that belongs to the Lord is not your work. It's not good works. It's not righteous deeds. It's not a good heart. It's not even a seeking soul that, that says, I'm going to muster up some faith and God will see my faith and he'll be pleased with me. Yes, uh, God is pleased with faith, but, but 
it's not that that it's, uh, faith alone can't save you. It's through grace. Faith through grace. The grace is the initiator. It's the finished work that Jesus did. If it weren't for the cross, your faith couldn't save you. It was the faith in what Jesus did to forgive your sin, to re- reconcile you, to atone for your sin and make you right with God again. And that same kind of grace not only saves you, but it keeps you, protects you, it watches over you. It is the shield about you to bring you to that promise that God has for you. John 1.13 says, speaking of salvation, not, it's not of those who were born and not of those of the blood, nor those of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's not in our doing, but it's in God. Salvation is but of God, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is but of God. It is first God and last God. It is the alpha of our salvation is Christ and the omega of our salvation is Christ. And you can, uh, Jonathan Edwards said it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. That's what you bring to the table. But what God brings to the table is, 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 is the army of heaven uh, at, at his command on your behalf saying no matter what's surrounding you, no matter how much sin, no matter how much aggression, no matter how much pain, no matter how much sorrow, no matter how many difficulties you're going through, I'm bringing all of heaven uh, at your disposal to set you free, to deliver you, to restore you. And, and David, David uh, finally gets to the place where he realizes the, the hope for you, the eternal establishment of his throne was not by might nor by power, but it was by the Spirit by the saving work of Jesus Christ. David was foreshadowing a time to come where the finished work of Jesus Christ would be sufficient for all your needs. You don't need anything else but the finished work of Jesus Christ and putting your hope and trust and confidence in that. And just as David's eternal kingdom was established of his throne, so also is our hope of eternal establishment of our salvation that's found in God and God alone. He's your hope. He's the one who surrounds you. And today, you started this message, and maybe you felt like David, where David said there, this is the psalm where I fled from those who were surrounding me. But now you've heard the end of the story, that God is salvation. He's our hope in time of trouble. He's the one who will rescue out of that miry clay. He's the one who rescued David from the bear, the lion, the giant, the enemies around him, and even from his own internal battles that were taking place in his own kingdom. It's one thing to be attacked from the outside. As we said today, being attacked from the inside can be even worse. But David was sustained through it all, unchanged through it all. Matter of fact, probably stronger for it, having gone through these battles and seeing how faithful the Lord is. And I want to say to you, no matter what you're facing today, the Lord's faithful and he's going to see you through. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray right now for those who would say like the song that we're kind of preaching about today and and more importantly, this psalm that we're talking and preaching about verse by verse today, that it may look like we are surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And the song goes on to say, this is how I fight my battle. This is how I fight my battle. I praise the Lord. I praise him. My praise, I lift it up to you. And that praise then gives me that confidence to intercede. And I pray for brothers and sisters who are listening to my voice right now, who are in the the battle of their life. They are totally surrounded by things and obstacles that they wouldn't believe uh, there any chance of getting out of. And Lord, it's easy for them to be just like David and want to flee. 
have flight, have fear, rather than have fight and faith. But I ask you right now, God, not for, not for them to pick themselves up by the bootstraps, not to try to bolster their own faith or confidence or uh, kind of get some gumption in them and fight in their own battles. No, Lord, they would just simply cry out loud to you today saying, help me, Jesus. Help me, Father. Help me, Lord. Fight this battle for me. Defeat my enemies. First of all, defeat my fear, my anxiety, my stress that causes me to have sleepless nights, that's causing me to, to, to be filled with this anxiety and worry whether I'm sleeping or whether I'm awake. And Lord, but once that's done, the internal transformation, I ask you for an external transformation as well. Change my circumstances, not just my heart. Lord, defeat the enemies that are all around about me. Defeat addictions, defeat marriage problems, defeat physical problems. Most of all, Lord, defeat these spiritual problems of lack of faith and hope and confidence in the goodness of the Lord. Because once we know you're good, Lord, that puts all our faith in the right place and our prayer in the right place and our worship. That's how we fight our battle. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.